Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome author of four fantastic books, including the great creative architect, Pierluigi Serraino. Did I say it right, man? Yeah, you did great. You did great. I'm very happy to be with you guys. It's great, great to talk to you, man. And we were uh, we were rolling beforehand, and I had to I had to get us recording because I was like, we're going to lose some magic. This is going to be like when James Brown was rolling on and didn't record some of those great takes beforehand. Yes, I'm very delighted to be here, and I have. I was telling Aiden, I'm very fond of uh, Irish people and Irish culture. Uh, maybe it's uh, it's my Italian heritage that makes me feel like this. But yeah. I have very close friends like that. So, so we're going to talk. We're going to talk about you know your ethos, but also some of the great work you've captured and brought to the world that was hidden in a way that was buried, and you brought this great gift back to the world of what is creativity. But before we go there, because you have a you have a great backstory Pierluigi and you, you talked about that Italian heritage but that's not really where yes you were raised in Italy till you were 16 but you 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 got off Italy and you, you landed in the States and it's given you these great lenses to see the world totally different It'd be great to hear your story well um, I was born and raised in Sicily and uh, I come from a family of the builders my father was a structural engineer and uh, uh, my brother is also a structural engineer. I was raised on construction sites uh, and uh, my mother was always uh, very interested in the arts. So I, I sort of, I'm the product of, in a classic sense, of both my parents. And uh, my father was always a, a, a very entrepreneurial and, uh, you know, raised me to think uh, independently and uh, to follow my own uh, my own uh, um, instincts. And so I wanted to be a musician. Uh, and my father was very skeptical about the possibility of uh, making a living out of this. So he uh, made me aware that there was a, this thing called architecture. And he gave me a book uh, called Architecture of Space uh, by Bruno Zevi. And from there, I, you know, developed a, a very strong interest in architecture as an art form. Uh, at 16, uh, I uh, came to the United States. Uh, I was actually here for a month, and I, I came here by myself. Well, I was with my brother, who was 18 at the time, but uh, he uh, was very independent uh, himself. And then uh, we actually split when we were here. We landed in San Francisco. So I was on my own at 16 in the Bay Area, which was extraordinary in the early 80s. And... Uh, um, I always felt that California was a place of free thinking. Uh, it's a frontier, and it's a, it's an economic frontier, it's a technological frontier, but it's a sociological frontier, and intellectually as well. So I then came back uh, to Europe, uh, came to the U.S. Uh, multiple times, uh, uh, went to Rome to study architecture, and graduated, a uh, license there, and then uh, uh, catapulted myself to Los Angeles uh, to do um, a master, actually did two masters, one at CyArc and one at UCLA. And there I did a lot of work, uh, uh, theoretical work uh, on architectural photography. I met Julius Schulman, the great architectural photographer. I did a book called Modernism Rediscovered. Uh, that came out with Tashin in 2000. Uh, I'm saying this because um, it felt that California was uh, was completely open to anything. I mean, you're a total newcomer, and all I had to do was making phone calls and knock people, and and it, it was uh, far away from everything. I didn't know anybody. I just had to follow my instincts. The people were responsible to that. And so with this, I met uh, a number of characters. I met uh, uh, the folks of Morphosis and many different architects, uh, Frank Isra, Mark Mack. Uh, um, I even met uh, Frank Gehry in the early days. Uh, uh, it was quite a, a wonderful uh, 
um, a playground. And then I moved to, uh, to UC Berkeley, where I worked on my doctoral program in architecture. And I kept writing and I kept practicing. I've always done the, this at the same time. Because I think of architecture as a as a humanistic enterprise, it's not really about square footage. It's about transforming the program into something impactful on the human condition. And in this respect, uh, to me, the architect that I respond the most to is Louis Kahn, who sublimated the the world of square footage into a spiritual experience. And his writing bear witness to this vision. So, um, as I was working on this uh, uh, architectural photography and then California modernism, because Schulman um, uh, photographed uh, uh, much of what was going on in the post-war period on the West Coast, uh, I became aware of this uh, extensive uh, uh, legacy, which is really the post-war period uh, uh, in the U.S. and especially in California, which is where California became uh, uh, the center of uh, uh, worldwide attention. Uh, after World War II, this amazing technology that had been developed, uh, you have to think 50% of the federal budget came to California during World War II, the development of the aircraft industry and the uh, shipbuilding industry on San Francisco and Los Angeles uh, uh, created an extraordinary technological society. The war is over, people are out there, they need a job, what are we going to do? Many of them go into the building industry and this changes dramatically the way people do architecture and practice engineering and things like that. Uh, one of the characters uh, that was most influential in uh, my thinking uh, in Berkeley here was Don Olson, who uh, was one of the architects that selected the, uh, the architects that would be part of the creativity study. And he was the one who made me aware that there were these files, that there was this uh, material uh, somewhere. And uh, another person that told me about this was uh, uh, Raymond Neutra, the third son of Richard Neutra, whom I met um, casually at the Oakland airport. Uh, he said, I found the files on my father. This was 2009. I think you should look at them because uh, Richard Neutra was one of the 40 architects that was uh, studied. Now, this study is very important because it's one of a kind uh, um, enterprise. Uh, one of those efforts that is unrepeatable in of itself. Uh, essentially, you uh, identify the most creative people in one field. Uh, uh, obviously, they're all alive. Uh, you invite them to come to Berkeley uh, in groups of 10 for three days, and they actually decide to come. The folks that came to be part of the study in 58-59 were really quite extraordinary character. There was Eero Saarinen, there was Louis Kahn, there was Richard Neutra, there was Ian Pei, uh, Pietro Belluschi, Elliot Noyes, uh, uh, Philip Johnson, George Nelson, uh, John Johansson, and we can go on and on and on. Uh, it was really remarkable. It's remarkable because uh, Saarinen had already done General Motors by 1955, and Philip Johnson had done the Seagram with the, you know, under Mies, in 1958, so these were people that were paid top dollars. And to come to Berkeley for three days to submit themselves to an experiment that, you know, was kind of far-fetched. It was done under the pressure of, in this case, William Worcester, who was a big supporter of of Eero Saarinen. He was the dean at UC Berkeley, the, the College of Environmental Design. And uh, Sarinen was the most important architect uh, uh, of his generation. So when people realized that Sarinen was coming, everybody jumped on it and they wanted to be part of the study. So it kind of snowballed. And so you have the, this cast of characters uh, in here that uh, goes through this uh, um, very uh, unlikely experiment, uh, um, a study that was structured around the assessment method, which was a method used to uh, select uh, um, individuals that would um, operate effectively under um, uh, tremendous pressure during war missions, uh, counter-espionage, uh, and things of this nature. And so they 
translated this method from you know war aims to civic aims uh, essentially uh, instead of looking at the effective people uh, they were looking at creative people but the concept was the same so three days in a in a uh, lab going through um, group discussions uh, live interviews uh, um, multiple uh, graphic forms, uh, uh, checklists. Uh, there were a total of 22 hours of uh, uh, procedures that were administered in uh, in those three days, and there were the formal times where people were being studied, uh, and then there were the informal times. You know, it's one thing when you're sitting down and you are checking these forms. Uh, uh, doing whatever you have to do. And then when they just interact with each other, their word choice, uh, their physical arrangement, everything became uh, a subject of uh, study. And so this uh, extreme form of surveillance was something that uh, had never been uh, uh, fully done to this uh, scale because this you have to think that the, the Arctic study is only one of the many studies that they did. They studied writers, they studied uh, Air Force pilots, uh, they studied uh, uh, the expedition, the members of the expedition on Mount Everest, uh, they studied, as I was telling you, Irish managers, they studied engineers of Silicon Valley, they studied women mathematicians, uh, and uh, a bunch of other groups. So it's, um, this was a, a gargantuan effort by all standards, and something that was never repeated again. And the fact that after all this effort, and all this money spent, and this uh, tremendous uh, human resources uh, in play that they did not do a book on it it seemed to be absolutely absurd i mean it's like you are imploding in so much data that you don't even know how to get around it yeah <laughs> and and that is what happened really so in a way i wrote the book for them but adding all the uh, backstage uh, details on how the selection process uh, took place, who were the people that they were dealing with, what was the rationale behind uh, many of their criteria. And, and that's just as important as the results. So so there's a lot to reflect upon. Although the book at uh, uh, this point came out uh, June of last year, uh, I keep discovering things. I mean, the, the archive is inexhaustible. So there, there are many papers that have been unpublished by uh, some of the IPAR founders. Uh, uh, with additional uh, data, new insights, uh, they all reinforce the the idea that the creative is really an independent thinker, and it's someone that sees the world in a in a very different way. He sees the reality, but the the way he or she sees the reality is not patterned the way. Uh, uh, it is seen by the majority of the population. I mean, if you think in terms of the bell curve, uh, the, the creative works uh, uh, at, the, at the edges of that curve. And so uh, we figure out that the really knowledge is the reorganization of uh, bits of, uh, well, creativity is the organization of bits of knowledge that are linked in unconventional ways. Uh, and that's an important part to see that a particular situation, a particular object, a particular relationship can be sequenced in ways that are not uh, typical will yield a result that is uh, uh, unforeseen. The, the creative by, by default does not suppress the possibility of an alternative, but let it all play out and, and that's huge yeah it's actually something i wanted to talk to you about when i read about your work i felt there's such a lesson here from an innovation perspective in that so many architects are actually innovators they see the world differently and so many entrepreneurs actually see the world differently whether it be through some type of adversity we, we mentioned before that some of the best architects were dyslexic and could write backwards etc and just actually saw things differently and saw patterns where others did not see. Something you say often is that it often looks like a step backwards what the architect is doing, but eventually people see that it's the way forward. So the, the, the challenge of architecture is that it 
takes uh, uh, a significant amount of advocacy for a building to be built. So you have to rally a community uh, to be behind you. And that's the reason why uh, the most uh, um, uh, influential architects are uh, amazing uh, persuasive people because they have to sell you a promise of happiness of things that have yet to, to happen. And uh, if you're doing this not as a commercial enterprise, but as a, a narrative of possibility, possibilities that are, are just simply not the, the, the usual uh, competent uh, deliverable, uh, then you have to make a case for why that will work. And then it's a leap of faith. In fact, one of the, the key ingredients of the creative is uh, the courage. And at the end of the book, uh, there is like the pinnacle of uh, the discovery that McKinnon and uh, his team found. They said, you just have the courage because you can be intelligent, you can have talent, uh, you can have insight. But are you going to act on that insight? You can have the energy, you can have the motivation. But will you do it? Will you actually take the leap? And you might crash, but crashing doesn't, doesn't diminish uh, the effort of trying. Because in the absence of trying, you will never, ever move the world forward. It's impossible. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, just think about the, the Wright brothers, Yeah, right? It's exactly in line with innovation. And, and it, it, what, I never thought about it until I read your work because it dawned on me that this, all this stuff, all this creativity that, and all the traits that, that the study discovered and you uncovered are, are the same as the innovator in that they have the courage, they have self-confidence they believe it if they see the world differently they also have to sell that idea to other people who are non-believers and get them on side and they're all similar traits and i just thought that that was just such a great thing to see that people who innovate and create different environments are also people who are innovators and that architects are actually the best architects in the world are innovators. The architecture is uh, a dealing with the mechanisms of real estate and, and real estate means uh, uh, finances and means banking and means loans and banks are notoriously risk adverse. So how can you promote innovation and, and uh, um, you know, uh, uh, fuel this leap forward into the unknown when you don't know what you're, where you're going to land. You have a hunch that it's going to go in that direction. You believe, you have this fierce belief, but it, it, your belief, it's uh, informed intuition. It's not irrational. You're not being capricious of or out of your mind. You have a hunch that something is not quite right and that there is a solution out there. So the creative consistently ruffles the feather of the norm, you know, the, the people that, that live their life according to the norm will uh, behave accordingly, but won't have the actual chance of moving the field forward. Now, not everybody has to be an innovator, obviously, and it's perfectly fine to be to be competent and to do uh, excellent work along those lines. But if you're seeking uh, the next big thing, it's just not going to come from that because uh, the creativity is it's rooted in uh, skepticism and in doubt. Is this really the only way in which we can do one thing? And that's why, uh, yes, we have shoes, but then there's always someone that comes up with a different shoe that tells us a different story about walking. And it's just not about uh, protecting our souls. It's, it's about uh, the experience of uh, inhabiting uh, uh, your foot, I mean, that your, your foot inhabits a, a, a piece of equipment that, uh, in a way that has never been seen before. Everything in creativity of every kind, it's about uh, um, charting a new territory. And the new territory is inherently fraught with risk. So how do you forge an agenda of risk-taking in an environment that is so uh, um, commercially um, fettered? you know, by, by specific uh, ties and obligations. It's a real challenge. And, and therefore, the architect that is able to pull it off and the creative in general has to sustain uh, that vision for a very long time because the system will consistently bash you until it has obliterated you unless you have enough resilience to counteract it and obviously have 
some demonstration that your thinking is actually grounded into something uh, because the creativity uh, has to uh, attend a real problem, not an imaginary problem. There have to be specific traits uh, that uh, McKinnon had identified very clearly. That's the beauty of the IPAR study and the conclusion is that they did not hesitate in making uh, conclusive statements about particular conditions. I mean, what are the conditions of creativity? Is the creative person, is the creative environment, is the creative product, is the creative process? In the absence of these four elements uh, uh, entering in synergy with each other, you cannot have creativity. I'm sure there are creative people in parts of the world that are inherently not um, structured for that creativity to emerge in its full uh, potential. Because creativity is, uh, the creative person is in every culture, in every age, in every, uh, um, you know, uh, class system. It's not tied to the particularities of uh, nature of a social system. It just is out there. It's just a different way of thinking. And that, Can, everybody can do that, yeah. anybody, as long as you're willing to listen to yourself. And that's why this resonates very much with Maslow and with the Winnicott, uh, the psychologist, is that we all were creative until schooling kicked in. It gives you the instruments of literacy, but at the same time starts uh, editing your thought process so that you start thinking more and more alike, as, so that you can become a functioning part of society. Uh, but the, the creative holds on to aspects of that uh, childhood. So your curiosity is inexhaustible. Yeah. You're, never, you're never done with your work, ever. It energizes you. It's yeah. very life-affirming. That's where that independence and that ego, that self-confidence and that courage that you mentioned is so important because you're going against the grain. And it'd be great, Pierluigi, if we could talk about some of the traits because I, I find this, this uncovered a whole new way of thinking for me from, an, from this study. I saw this is what employers are looking for today because companies are becoming very similar and companies are being disrupted over and over again. Yet companies hire the same people from the same schools and the same consultants to come in and do the same strategies for the companies. And it's just the Einstein insanity loop over and over. And what they need is different thinkers. Reading your book will show them some of the traits and some of the characteristics that they need for people, new hires into their company to give fresh thinking. There, there is a challenge uh, that is uh, uh, a default into uh, the company and the creative. Companies are business entities they come together uh, under the pressure of commerce and money-making. And the creative has uh, the economic value as the lowest value compared to the aesthetic value. When I talk about aesthetic, it's not about simply uh, you know, the sheer aesthetic as a, as a, as a um, superficial layer to be added. The, the creative person doesn't want to solve the problem alone. He or she wants to solve the problem beautifully as an art form. It has to be right. It's just like writing the perfect algorithm. And maybe many algorithms can do the same, can serve the same function. That's why the, this false uh, uh, belief that the post-war period is a problem-solving period uh, is actually uh, debunked, this myth, because the creative doesn't really care about solving the problem. Yes, the, the uh, gathering data, you know, doing the f classic data retrieval, figuring out uh, what's happening, what's, what's at stake, uh, who are the stakeholders and blah, blah, blah. That's an aspect of it. But it's, that is not where the creative effort comes. It's sublimating the, the, the specificity of the situation into a bigger statement, uh, which is a statement about the, the, you know, the beauty of the question that you're dealing with uh, and, and the resolution of it as, uh, at a level of the art form. And that is, has nothing to do with the architect. Uh, even the mathematicians uh, were interested at that level. The aspect that, that was really fascinating about the study is that the same traits uh, were uh, 
uh, found in people who had a lot of relationship with the media, like the architects, because the press is a very important aspect uh, of uh, architecture. There's a lot uh, in name recognition, uh, which mobilizes uh, money, not, not differently from fashion. But the mathematicians don't have a presence in the media. People just don't know who they are, right? Tell, name me a mathematician today that is the, world, the most famous one. Nobody knows. And yet they had the same trait. They did not want to work in groups. They wanted to uh, explore their inner world. The, the work is uh, um, designed to address a specific problem, a real problem, not a, an imaginary one. There's nothing capricious about it. It's, uh, it's solved in a way that has never been solved before. So therefore, there is a skepticism uh, around that, that kind of response. And then as you keep... Uh, doing more and more work in that vein, uh, then the community realizes that maybe there is a different way of doing things. So the, uh, there's an element, that there's, there's a time factor in the creativity. It's not that uh, you have a, a sudden burst of something and then voila, you have the solution. The, they have also identified the, the five phases of creativity, which were um, in a way, they, they confirmed through their empirical study what had already been hypothesized. You know, you have a, a, a data retrieval uh, period, then you do a processing of it, you're trying to figure out an answer. Routinely, you get frustrated, it's not good enough. Yes, you can be competent, but it's not where it should be. You retreat yourself uh, from, uh, from that question. Uh, subliminally, your brain uh, still, still processes the question. You have a eureka moment, and you go back and verify that through the, the very disciplined work. These five phases uh, exist uh, uh, pretty much uh, um, in every field. And so that's something that uh, uh, if you can declare it, then you can structure a company culture that will enable these phases to exist, right? So uh, that's important. If the, the creative doesn't work on a nine to five scheme, what kind of scheme can you create where your timesheet is organized in a different way? <laughs> Yeah. Maybe it's an accounting issue, right? Because you need to have a job number for your time to be. Because ultimately, people have to. Have, they need to have the retirement thing. They need to have uh, the, the standard perks of employment. But the credit doesn't really care for that. You know, I mean, I have to say, it's just, it's, it's not, uh, uh, the creative doesn't tend to be company material in the way we know companies today. So maybe it's a question of finding a new format for a company for these uh, synergies to take place. Because ultimately, you know, these are not people that work entirely in isolation. They come out, they generate the idea in isolation, but this, the, often, um, and their execution takes place in teams. But if uh, if uh, the creative is put in a team right away from the get-go, he or she will typically underperform. Uh, he will do the least amount of work because he or she will feel typically that the work is below the standard that he or she has decided to have. And it sounds very arrogant, but, uh, you know, not everybody, if you, if you have worked in groups, not everybody has the same interest and the same drive. Uh, the creative is radicalized, uh, you know, self-radicalized into, into the, the field of, of their choice. Right, just, it's it's not there. There is no holiday. There is no Christmas. Yeah. Um, I remember I, I met the Eros um, and son Eric Siren in the last year, and he was telling me that at some point Kevin Roach uh, told him about the uh, the story that his father came in one day and he said, "Where is everybody?" And Kevin Roach said, "Well, it's uh, it's Christmas." What do you mean it's Christmas? <laughs> but, you know, Kevin is Irish, so you guys should relate to this. But yeah. it's, it's funny. I mean, the guy is in his own time zone. Yeah. It's just, what, what do you mean it's Christmas? I love so, that. So, uh, yeah. You know what, Pierre and I was just thinking there when you said this about the, the creative person not feeling, you know, committed to the group or feeling that this work is substandard and they go quiet. And you often see this with, really talented people but you also see it in places like the classroom where 
a child might go quiet and then they're seen as enfant terrible or they're seen as yeah. the awkward child or the and they're 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 almost co- conditioned to think there's something wrong with them and it's only through yeah. mentorship or, par- or or strong parents to to ignite that gift or to unleash it that that child can succeed how do you feel about that? Because I know your father. That's something that I, I, as a parent, I've been myself interested in. Uh, the uh, in the study uh, that McKinnon conducted, uh, he realized that the parents of these creatives gave uh, a significant amount of autonomy to their children. So th- their children knew. Uh, they felt that their children knew how to conduct themselves, but they also held them to very high standards. The standards were through uh, their own conduct and their own uh, 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 sense of authority. Uh, Like uh, someone that was a parent uh, could be, um, could set an example of uh, ethics, of uh, work ethic, uh, of, of integrity, something that is transferred to the child, but then the child is not controlled, it's not micromanaged. The child is allowed to develop uh, on his or her own uh, her own pace. And then in the life of the creative, there's always someone that awakens them to their own potential. Sometimes it's a friend, sometimes it's a brother or sister, sometimes it's uh, occasionally it's a parent, but uh, often it's a teacher. Uh, someone that uh, made them accountable to their possibility, uh, to their to the possibility, potential, to they could, what they could really do. And then that um, uh, energy is unleashed. It's as if the creative uh, has uh, is an incubation, uh, uh, kind of a um, sort of a moving target. Uh, he or she moves around and it, and, and tries to he's interested in everything uh, there's curiosity on every subject and at some point that curiosity finds a specific outlet and then tremendous intensity goes into that tremendous resolve uh and, and it's that a one individual a friend uh a mentor uh someone who has a, some age difference that uh, in a way uh, establishes a benchmark of performance and delivery yeah. to which the creative wants to match and exceed. That that was uh, pretty much across the board. I love that. And you know what? It, it reminds me of, it's almost like our role. And if we are, if we are privileged enough to have the, the, the bandwidth and also maybe the finances to do this, that I often feel it's our, it's our role as parents it's almost like the child is a honeybee and you're to give them as many flowers to test and to, yes. fi- to find the one that they want. And then when you, when you see and, you, and you're aware, you have your radar on to go, he or she is really into this. Now I need to nur- nourish that and nurture it and let them, let them intensify. But that. you know, you know why can this model be applied to companies? Right. I mean, if a company, if a company uh, creates a situation where people can flourish, but really can flourish, not that they can they get milked uh, to extract labor from them in a kind of in a classic Marxist scheme, <laughs> and yeah. then they are get, getting peanuts because uh, uh, you know the 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 underperformance is the function of uh, a, a lack of respect for the workforce. Yeah, okay, I'm going to give you my time, but what, what do I get in return? I, myself, when I worked in, in firms, I was never credited for anything. Yeah. And, you know, no matter how hard I worked, yes. it mattered. Well, I mean, that's, but it matters to me. It does, yeah. <laughs> right? And, it's, and, it's, and then uh, the, the, even the, the financial rewards go somewhere else. I don't know, there, there has to be a, a, a different way of doing things because uh, I, I, I frankly see uh, widespread happiness in the workforce I, I don't see i don't see growth in a professional growth i don't see uh, 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 the betterment of the human condition i just see people getting receiving paychecks but being disillusioned yeah and then you know you you buy stuff yeah and, and it's get, it's get, it just doesn't seem very 
Yeah, and it's getting yeah, worse. It's isn't worse it? and worse. It's getting frankly. worse. And, and it's actually, you know, I, I joined the company I'm in, Catawave, at the moment. I, I joined it for that reason because I was I was seeing the same thing. And I was like, there's people disillusioned. There's companies that are rudderless, that are just ghost ships on the ocean and are heading towards icebergs. And a lot of CEOs and leaders are just caretakers of a role rather than actually wanting to do that and to change and then they have people like you or change makers or mavericks within the company who are capable of changing the course of the ship, yet they won't engage with them and, and, and let them have a more of a leadership role or let them have more of influence on the company. Oh, but the, the, the system will purge you. The system is designed to, to keep the status quo. I, I mean, I am, uh, I am all from entrepreneurship and... Uh, and uh, you know individualism. Uh, I do feel that uh, nurturing uh, other people's talent uh, uh, it does benefit the company because it's an ecosystem. Pe- people can always return to the company, or they can form their own company, right? I mean, it's uh, it's an aspect of uh, of uh, um, uh, I don't know raising. Uh, uh, new talent and knowledge transfer. I mean, we're not here. We all have an expiration date, and uh, uh, this kind of thinking is the thinking of the alchemist. You know, if you have some beautiful knowledge that you can share and you can uh, 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 pass around, why not? And then you will make you will develop more because you have created conditions of. Uh, of growth, of artistic growth, of creative growth. People that hang on to particular things as the only thing uh, are actually hiding more structural issues. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's very one-sided. I admit that. I just don't see a, a real healthy environment in the absence of a possibility for an individual to to grow. Um, not just financially, when you have when you have the opportunity to grow financially, but but uh, to grow as a human being, yeah. I mean, it's learning is a structural part of the human condition. You want to learn. You want to be aware. Uh, if you spend so much time working, it, it cannot be drudgery. Monday should be a, a day to celebrate, not like a death sentence. I see the most creative people. They don't do work-life balance because they don't see a div- they don't see a division between work and life. It's the same thing. And they're doing exactly. they're doing what they work at as part of their life, and that's why I think that what you said is so spot on about it needs to be a journey of discovery and curiosity and and learning for it to be anyway enjoyable. But I'd I'd love to jump to this Pierre Luigi because sure. you, sa- you said this at the start about when you got to San Fran that you and, and California that you felt this that it was such a place of creativity and growth and. I, like I'm a huge believer in that, and you as an architect will totally get this, is that if the environment, be it a building or an area, is filled with like-minded people, and this goes for corporations and organizations as well, if, if people are on the same page mentally, they can achieve such amazing things. And then if the, if the environment it, in, enables them and, and gives them even more, and you talked about a, a building being so much more than a building that it that it, it gets into a spiritual it's a spiritual um entity essentially that those things put together can really create magic in a in a in a in a business i am completely uh, with you uh i completely with you as far as uh, both the human ecology that is part of a company as well as the physical environment to which you're part of. Uh, There is some kind of cross-pollination between the place you're physically inhabiting and the way you experience life. I don't have any empirical um, studies on that, but uh, I have noticed that in uh, in spaces that have have been well-designed, and they don't have to be modern spaces they can be also uh, the spaces of classicism that uh, people live better their their mental health is uh, uh, much higher and they tend to live longer i mean the quality of your life uh, is significantly higher so uh, a sense of uh, um, 
feeling connected uh, and uh, part of a bigger thing is something that definitely helps uh, uh, promote uh, a, a desire to contribute and to give because the creative ultimately uh, is uh, is a romantic. Uh, if uh, uh, economic value is not the primary reason why people do what they do, um, the, the excitement of uh, sharing that that discovery is as if you know what I just realized this thing. Look at this, and then wow, everybody looks at the same thing and they get the same excitement. The creative works more along those lines, uh, and he or she will continue to operate along those lines with with all their work. Uh, California created conditions. Uh, 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 in, in in certain parts, uh, I would say it still does today. Although the, the digital economy is creating uh, uh, its own form of feudalism, uh, uh, unfortunately. Um, but when you are away from uh, the lid of uh, um, uh, social systems that have been historically uh, locked. Uh, you don't allow the alternative to grow organically. So California was always far away from the centers of power uh, until uh, it became itself its own center of power. You have to think that uh, that uh, the the internet uh, was a, a military technology, and the MIT, you know, got a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, tremendous amount of uh, um, uh, federal funding. Uh, for that, but uh, um, it's still part of the East Coast, and the East Coast is closer to Europe, and Europe has its own uh, hierarchical um, structure that doesn't allow uh, ideas that could upset the society as we know it to do what it wants to do. So in California, none of this was uh, was a play. So the, the internet exploded through Silicon Valley and through you know, essentially a, a technology that has put the world on its knees. I mean, no one can do anything without computers. I mean, it's yeah. impossible. <laughs> yeah. Impossible. And and they're all in Silicon Valley because there are conditions uh, that allow. It, it's, it's an intersection of things, right? It's the role of California in in the, the, the world order. It's uh, the end of the Western world. Well, the, the the climate is fantastic. Uh, the place is only 165 years old, practically yesterday for European standards. Uh, everybody's always a newcomer, but because uh, he or she's a newcomer, is also part is already instantly a Californian. It's very easy. It's very easy to to fit in because no one uh, there is no norm about the Californian. It's an open ended scheme of of. Uh, human achievement and if you just want to stay in the uh, next to the pool it's just fine it's just that, that laziness is and pleasure is built into this but at, at its core there is this uh, individualism uh, filled with uh, uh, youthful energy and youthful energy uh, youth is something is not chronological it's uh, it's in the spirit of the people and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright said something really beautiful in uh, interviews with uh, Mike Wallace toward the end of his life. He said, uh, young is something that there's nothing you can do, nothing at all about. But the youthful is something that it's uh, it's part of your spirit. And if you are youthful, that quality, you will never lose it. You will always have it. And uh, California has that spirit. I mean, Frank Gehry is 88, but it's very youthful as an individual. Mm. I mean, the, the the architecture is very joyful. It has a lot of, uh, you might not like it, people say that's not architecture, whatever, but that's a different story. It's the very possibility of doing it. Uh, where can this happen? And, yeah. and, and that's what, what California uh, has been. And, and that's why uh, creativity, you know, talking about uh, the, the, the four uh, categories, uh, cre creative product, the creative process, creative person, creative environment, uh, came in full force here at a scale that has yet to be matched. I mean, I I love New York, but New York is not California. It's just not. New York is the center of economy, is the center of publishing, but it's not the center of technology. It, yeah. it, it's it's uh, it's uh, another London. Yeah, <laughs> it's a financial world. 
but but it's 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 extremely difficult to, to break through New York because it's very locked yeah. through family. It's a much older society. That's why I don't believe in China as an economic. Yeah, I mean yes, there's a sheer number of people, but there's no free speech. The environment. Uh, is not the one that we have here in California. And, you know, I'm not saying that California is perfect. I mean, a lot of things are uh, that can go haywire. But, uh, m- you know, broadly speaking, the conditions are more favorable here for things to happen at many levels. Yeah, many but it, levels. it makes a lot of sense because it's like even an organization, you might walk into one section of the, of the business and it will have a totally different culture and a different value system and a different mindset, and that you feel almost a different energy. And it's the same with, even in the same country, you get those different values and different mindsets and different energy fields. And that's what what it's like in, in the States, I find. You know, you go from, from state to state, or you go from Cali to, to, to New York, and you feel that. It's a different vibe, literally. Yeah, 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 no, you're, you, you can you feel it, and therefore, your ability to operate and, 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 and the way you think about how you could operate changes because certain, certain options are completely foreclosed. And the thing is, in California, no one is going to tell you you're a total nut job. You will always have someone who's going to listen to you. Whereas uh, 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 in other parts of the world, you know, people start laughing. Uh, this is ridiculous. Why would you even think about that? You don't even start. So you cannot do anything un- until you start thinking about the possibility of making that thing happen. Nothing will change be- before having the vision of it. I know it sounds like uh, I'm sounding like Captain Obvious, but no, but it is much. true. Yeah, it's true. You have to you have to think it. You have to declare it through a drawing, a diagram, or something, and then you it becomes transmittable to someone else. And in California. There's always someone that's willing to listen to you. And it's not because people were born here. I mean, a, a fraction of the people that's been born here. Everybody has come here from somewhere else. So, so everybody carries. I mean, the, the, I would say the general ethos is, is, a, is an ethos of discovery and, and playfulness and uh, possibilities of making things happen. You, you just don't come here to lounge. Let's put it like that. I mean, yeah, you might go to Palm Springs, but... You're not. You don't stay here to be inactive. Let's put it like this. Zuckerberg could have stayed in Harvard, but he, he would have not made Facebook. You have not created. There was no way. Yeah. He had to come. So, Pierre Luigi, it's uh, it's been phenomenal speaking to you, man. It's uh, been a real pleasure. And the book is the Creative Architect. It's a very highly recommended read for way beyond architecture. I think that it's really important to say that to our audiences that this book is. While it's the subject matter, and you're the subject matter expert, there's so many, so many values and, and nuggets of knowledge that you can get from this book. And uh, Pierre Luigi Saraino, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for joining us. Hey, uh, it's been wonderful, and uh, I greatly enjoy our time together. Now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Ben Ryan, CEO and founder of Ambionics. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. So some people will, will know the story, your trials and tribulations and your reaction to those trials and tribulations. But there's a saying that I love and I came across it when I was about 18. I saw the movie La End, which is a French movie. And it's, it starts off with this story of this guy who falls from the, I don't know, 50th floor from a building. And the narrator says, L'important n'est pas la chute, c'est l'atterrissage, which means the important thing is not the fall, but the landing. And when I read the story about you and Sol and your wife, I thought of that straight away, which is the reaction that you took to this challenge that you were given. Yeah. And your positive reaction to it has been fantastic. Could you tell our audience the story, Ben? Yeah, I will do. Firstly, though, I think my father would be uh, laughing here. He uh, Something he's always uh, told me as I've been growing up is, it, you know, not, don't be scared of heights. It's not the height that kills you, it's the floor, which I yeah. think ties in nice. nicely with what you've just said. Um, uh, but no, I, I def- definitely, yeah. Um, I uh, I had to get to grips with the fact that my my son was going to lose his hand on the first day, and 
um, you you just immediately started looking at my own hands and thinking that all the things I do. I've you know I mess around with vehicle mechanics, stripping and assembling engines, gardening. I love technical projects, building computers. I used to be a boxer. I played guitar, and I just dwelled on all these things that were he was never going to do. And um, it was actually a nurse who came in to tell us an update on Sol's blood work because the hospital that transferred him hadn't. Um, hadn't acknowledged that or, or even suggested that it could have been caused by an injury. So we were, they were looking for underlying blood clotting disorders and stuff. So we were constantly asking for the blood work. And they came in and said, we don't have the blood work, um, but we know his blood type. It's it's B positive. And I'm, you know, I'm not a religious man, but I took that as a sign. I clung onto it and uh, I'm going to be positive, I thought. So I'm only going to think about what I can do to help him. And, uh, you know, from that night in the hospital, in the shower, I was thinking, right, how am I going to teach him how to dry himself with one hand? And literally went into it from there. It just became this... I knew I was going to have to teach him things to do with one hand. So I was going to have to learn how to, for example, tie my shoelaces with one hand so I could show him and that kind of thing. And um, that's, that's, that approach has taken me to where I am today. Yeah. And that, that, that adversity, that was the word I was looking for because we did mm. a show last week on AQ. So it's this thing, you might not have heard of it, Ben. It's, it's AQ. This guy, Dr. Paul Stoltz has, has built a career on it and he studied some of the most successful CEOs in the world and they all, score very very highly in adversity quotient so they've all had some adversity that they overcome which teaches them and, and changes their how their brain works and already man you're you're showing quote you're showing signs of that already with, with what your reaction to the adversity and you just went okay i'm gonna feel sorry for myself that's natural those kind of yeah. dealing with it straight up front but then mm-hmm. and, and and i think you know it's it's a fatherly thing as well. It's like, okay, well, what can I do to fix this? And and you yeah. went and you actually went for that hell for leather to fix this. Yeah, um, I, I it, it didn't strike me immediately. I knew I knew I could do something um, that wasn't being offered straight away. I, I don't know if you've seen about you know he, he's lost his he, he retained about an inch of bone below the elbow on the left arm, um, so not an awful lot. And you know surgeons were telling us really to go straight through the elbow that there was going to be so little bone that could be saved below the elbow that we, you know, it would be cleaner, less hassle all round for Sol if we just took away that movement. And, um, you know, we got the family together, looked at all the pros and cons, and we decided that, no, we don't want to close any doors. Just because they're saying that he won't be able to operate a device with what he has doesn't mean that there won't be another device soon that can use it. Or, for example, I, I started reading that they were 3D printing bone and that they can elongate bones and all sorts of things. I thought, well, if we if we take that option away now, you've closed that door forever. So by leaving it open, I, I started to explore possibilities. And um, I've come up with several different things. A lot of, a lot of interest has been gathered around the hydraulic prosthetic for sort of eight to ten month olds. But the real groundbreaking stuff, I think, was the stuff I did for pennies, starting when he came home from hospital. And that's where I think the real innovation began, just looking at Sol um, and trying to equip him to deal with his environment, however however basic that environment was. I mean, I, I started by, um, uh, he was lying on a, a little play mat that's got two sort of semi, semi-circular hoops over the top with toys suspended from it. And I realized his left arm was just sitting by his side doing nothing. So I started to lower this, you know, get some string and try and lower the toys on that side. And I realized I was, I was modifying the wrong thing. I should be making his arm longer. So I went into the kitchen, got a kitchen sponge, rolled it up, put some micropore tape around it to make a, an approximate size wrist using a bit of cotton wool and a bandage, a sports bandage. I just lightly tacked it onto his stump and literally within seconds he started moving it, um, smiling and giggling and then started hitting his toys. So I thought, well, every time he's playing with his toys, I'll just pop this on it. Literally just slid over the stump and changed it out every three or four days and um i i think that's been quite groundbreaking in terms of his ability to accept even a passive prosthetic from the nhs he just put it straight on um you know the, the prosthetist said we'd be lucky to get him to wear it for 15 minutes a day put it straight on where it wears it all day long falls asleep with it you take it off and wake up in the morning he puts it on himself so that's what i really want to focus on is, is getting any technology the earliest stage you can to try and assist the use of movement and, and interaction and, you know, if you do that seamlessly from, in, in Sol's case, from five weeks, then they don't know any different. They, they, they've only ever had a reach. Yeah, man, this is awesome because, you, you know, you usually hear about it the other way from an amputee who's lost the arm, still thinks it's there. So mm. it's ghost limb. And mm. you, you've actually re- reverse engineered that. So in his brain, as his brain develops, he'll have yeah. this and he'll develop the movement. So when 
And and I agree with you, man. Like this is only a matter of time, and hopefully it's your company, Ambionics, mm. that you started out of this that develops this. Somebody's going to develop a solution because it always does come, and it's a case of leaving your options open. I love what you've done, man. It's, I I actually I didn't know you did that with the penny solution at the start. Yeah. Putting together that, so so out of that you you developed Ambionics, which is what you're doing now and what your sole focus is now. Yes, yeah. Um, so that came around about this time last year. Um, Sol had had his first uh, NHS arm, which is like a, um, I think it's fiberglass, fiberglass varnished, and uh, on the socket with a, a silicon hand. That's I think it comes to about 350 quid in total. So it's, and most kids don't tend to wear them; they just sort of sit in the corner of the room. But Sol was wearing it; he was grabbing and, and reaching things. Um, and I wanted to try and keep whatever I came up with as similar to that as possible. And I knew that they wouldn't, that the NHS wouldn't offer myoelectrics. Uh, until he was three, possibly even four, depending on how good a signal they could get from the this, um, from the muscle under the skin. So I thought that's far too long. I knew with my psychology hat on that there, there are two periods of brain pruning uh, where the, the, the brain literally prunes away nerves that are not used very often to make itself more efficient. So it's literally destroying itself. And you start off with twice the number of neurons that you'll need as an adult um, in, in, in childhood. So the first two and a half years is about plucking away literally half of your nerves in the brain and much of learning to sit up, stand up, first words. These are as much about tr trimming away useless nerves as they are about reinforcing or uh, adding extra myelination uh, uh, to the to the nerves which are used. So I thought intervening at three years of age when that uh, that period of pruning finishes about two and a half just didn't make sense to me. I thought I, ne I needed to make sure that Sol had mastered the use of a grasp by the time he's two and a half years old and um we're on track to do that now that's yeah, brilliant man because you're actually tying together so many elements we've talked about on the show over time like we've talked about we did a show on habits and the brain stores stores habits the reason yep. being to actually save energy because all it wants to do is keep you alive and you're saying yeah. the same thing here because yeah. we we professor susan greenfield on a few weeks ago she's a eminent brain professor from the uk and she's saying the same thing like you you like for example, by putting kids on tablets too long, their yeah. their brains develop differently. They don't develop yeah. emotional skills, etc. So you're tapping into all this stuff, man. And so this is stuff you did not know about yeah. two years ago. It, yeah, no, no. Uh, well, I, I knew about the psychology. I'm, uh, I've always had a keen interest in developmental psychology. I think the changes that go on through the womb and for the first five years are the most interesting area of any kind of development in psychology. But also the neuroscience stuff. I, I didn't. I was never interested in the you know, Freudian, uh, wishy-washy kind of uh, sort of made-up stuff. I was. I was always into the hard science type stuff. And um, we know that there's two real prominent periods of this brain pruning, and a lot is known about the second one, which is around puberty. So you know, memories, thoughts, skills, things that you haven't really mastered by the time you hit puberty, you never will. That's well well understood. Um, in, in a few rare case studies where children have not learned any language. They never will if they hit puberty, having not learned language. Um, but that goes for reasoning skills, gymnastics, sports, music, anything. The problem is, is that I approached the university to try and study this really un poorly understood but rapidly explosive period of brain growth. And academics won't touch it. There's just not enough known about that area already for them to get a hook into. So it's really risky. Even though, to you and me, just at face validity, it makes perfect sense. You know this period of brain pruning is going on. You know why not? Why not try and implement something sooner? Just you know, what if? Yeah. Uh, but academically, they won't touch it because very little is understood. Unfortunately, you can't keep you know a twelve-month-old baby still in an MRI machine. They don't do too, too well in interviews, so not much has been studied about it. But that was my rationale. That the same thing with puberty. If you if you don't learn a skill by the time you finish that pruning at the end of puberty, then you never will. I figured that maybe that's why kids around about the age of two and a half to three just disregard prosthetics if function is left till too late. And I found a clear pattern. Um, so I started looking around, you know, uh, American sites, uh, European sites, looking at prosthetics and orthotics. And this cornerstone idea was the earlier you can get intervention, the better, and especially with function. So <clears throat> I looked at what was available. Okay, myoelectrics is the dominant approach, but they, they're not particularly useful. Um, given the puppy fat the babies have and body powered hooks, which Sol's about to be fitted for are quite hideous looking things. They really look like they came out of a Doctor Who episode and they're not what you'd associate with a cute child. They're quite industrial looking, but yeah. very functional. I thought there's got to be a combination. So I've, I've come up with something that uses uh, fluid and it, it's only 
it's not for all amputees it's only for certain levels of amputation or for limb deficiency but where there is a you know the ability to provide body power then you can use that to displace fluid and control a basic grip and that's that's never been done before so that's really what ambionics is here to develop and, and try and get out to children as far and wide as possible yeah and so just to to bring that home for people so you you didn't just focus on soul. You, you went, okay, well, I'm going to take this pain away from everybody, this challenge. And you decided to just go on it. But, but I wanted to frame it in this, Ben. You, mm. you, you were a tinkerer. You weren't an inventor, but you, you like to toy around with stuff. And then, so I just think this is marvelous, man. Like, cause you're, I'm talking to you, you're in your man cave right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but you've turned that man cave into your office like some of the best yeah. companies in the world have started that way i had the idea um you've probably heard it bounded around that i got the idea from a spider so i was up about four in the morning thinking how could i come up with another system that didn't use electronic sensors not, not myoelectric sensors so i thought maybe like a micro switch in a spongy piece of rubber that you could you know to activate a switch with the stump um and i started thinking who could i talk to about robotics and then i just did just see the spider i remembered that they use fluid and i thought that's a brilliant idea. He, he can certainly squish two bags of fluid or actuators inside the stop socket using the small piece of movable stump that he got. So that was it. That was like a eureka moment. And I was a man possessed. I scrounged all the little spare parts that I had from printers and plumbing fittings and stuff from when I'd installed my kitchen, anything that would could be used um, and started building small double acting hydraulic cylinders. I don't know if you've seen the videos on my Facebook page and on YouTube, basically like a, an inch long, cylinder with two inputs and you can make a piston slide back and forth with a little o-ring to stop the fluid coming out um i got a reasonably good enough design using just a, a press drill at home in this in this in this uh, man cave and you know the, the hardest thing was getting that dead centered once i did i found a screwdriver handle that was made of chrome that became the piston rod a couple of washers inside they, they became the piston itself and some marigold glove fingers which became the actuators got the system working when I realized that just with my little fingers, I could squish those and it actually produced meaningful torque at the other end, a usable grip. I thought, right, this is really simple. Now we just need to put this in something similar to his NHS prosthetic. And, um, you know, took the idea to Bangor University and they, they helped me by scanning the arm, producing a, a 3D mesh of it, which I then imported into um, Autodesk's Fusion 360 software and started chopping it up. And um, to be honest with you, I've, it's it was really, really difficult and really tricky to learn, but it's uh, the way I look at it is it's, it's as I say, it's a kind of therapy for me. When I when I know I'm making progress, I'm feeling better about you know that black period of time at the beginning that we were talking about earlier. So it's I don't know. I, I'm I'm so busy. I'm working maybe twelve hours a day, maybe longer. But I've never been so happy doing something in my life. Yeah, man. It's like it's way more than working for yourself. It's working with yeah. a mission, uh, with a mission to you know to make yeah. the world a better place. You know, it's, it better had me because I haven't been paid for a year, so I've just done it completely for free and uh, begged, borrowed, and stolen money to get uh, to get my mortgage payments in. So I've been really really lucky with my parents um, being able to help me out with at least the mortgage. Um, but Christ, over the last year, I've done patio jobs, gardening, um, shelf stacking, anything to just keep the, paying the bills, but allow me to keep on this prototyping. And yeah. everyone else thought I was losing it. And quite locally, I think people thought I'd become a bit of a hermit and gone crazy until they saw me all over the TV and then they realized what it was I was doing. Yeah, and because like, let's move to that now, man, because, you know, I've seen you've got so much coverage, but what doesn't add up for me is that you're looking for 40 grand sterling on Indiegogo. Mm -hmm. under ambionics so if anybody mm -hmm. types in ben ryan or ambionics you'll find you yeah. mm -hmm. but it's only at 17k like and i'm yes. gonna go and what the is happening here it's uh, it's been a well first of all the perception is i think that we're successful that we're up and running we're well funded you know we're working with autodesk stratasys are behind us the nhs have endorsed their approach uh we look like a really successful outfit and it when you think that something's successful and lots of other people are looking at it as well, so you know when it's on TV that millions are looking at it, this thing called bystander behavior kicks in, bystander apathy. Oh, where right. if, if bystander apathy is, for example, I think if, um, if, you, if, if you're at a busy place and there's lots of other people around and a little old lady falls over, you're a lot less likely to help than if it's only you around. Oh, wow. So I think, yeah, so it's a well-known psychology. So I think people think we're successful. We don't need their help someone's going to come and pick this up you know there's a yeah. lot of people looking at this it's going to go but at the moment i like i say i've, I've missed two mortgage payments 
I'm flying by the skin of my pants, but the, re the reception that we've had to the campaign means that we no longer needed that. Originally, it was 150 grand. That's come down to 40 just from engineers, patent attorneys, um, parents coming forward as well, offering to take part in clinical trials for free. It's just been amazing. Um, but it's, yes, yeah, one of these balls that's up in the air has got to land soon. We need to, you know, we've got a, a patent deadline to, to make sure that we can um, patent and, and specify as many countries around the world as we can to produce in. Yeah. We've got to get the prototype and the power-assisted version um, created by uh, mid-October. Yeah, man, I do, I, that was the sound of me just sending an email to somebody I know in the States. I'm going to go, and can you help with this? And, and you know what? I, I'd ask uh, the audience of the Innovation Show if you know somebody. I mean, regardless of making your own donation, but if you know somebody who can help, drop but us an email, drop Ben an email, get on, you're on Twitter, you're on LinkedIn, you're on Indiegogo, you know, you're reachable, man. You know, um, I'd love, I'd love some help to come from the little bit of coverage we can give you with the innovation show, because I, lo I love your attitude, man. You know, it's something that, that very few people would deal with positively and, and you're, you're a role model for a mindset, man. So. Congratulations for that, and it will Thank happen, man. I, no doubt, this is going to happen for you, and this will all be looking back and go. My AQ, <laughs> my AQ is massive as a result of this. Um, ben, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man, and we wish you the very best of luck, Ben Ryan, CEO and founder of Ambionics. Uh, ben, l give us a quick—you'll know off by heart—all the, the places that people can find you. Uh, yeah, you can find us on Facebook and at uh, Ambionics UK, on Instagram at Ambionic underscore boy, on Twitter, um, and you can look at the website as well, www.ambionics.co.uk. Nice one, Ben. Well, listen, pleasure to talk to you, man. Aiden, brilliant. Thank you. Keep in touch. Take care, man.